Bibles with me. Turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 14. The book of Genesis, chapter 14. We're going to begin reading in verses 17, verse 17, and we're going to read through verse 24. Genesis 14, beginning in verse 17. Here's what God says to us. After his, that is, Abram, after his return from the defeat of Shedelamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Ener, Eshkol, and Memre take their share. Well, it's been a while, so allow me to remind us of what is happening here in Genesis 14. We have King Shedelamer of Elam, who at this time is the primary ruler of this little part of the world. He has a strong military and he demands that other cities pay him taxes or else he will come in his fury and destroy them. Five kings, including the king of Sodom, decide to rebel against the king of Elam. Basically, they withhold their taxes. And so before long, King Shedelamer, along with some kings from some other Subject cities, they come with their mighty men to bring punishment on these rebellious cities. King Shedelamer and his allies easily win the battle, and the people and the possessions of these rebelling cities are taken captive by him. Now, this is of interest to us because we know one of the people taken captive by King Shedelamer. We know this man named Lot. Lot is Abram's nephew. And when Abram learns of what has happened, he and some of his neighbors form an alliance and they go out after King Shedelamer and they defeat him and they retrieve the people and the possessions that King Shedelamer had taken. And Lot also is rescued. Abram led the way. In this brief military campaign. And now Abram has returned home victorious. 
We read in verse 16, Then Abram brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. And so now, beginning in verse 17, we find Abram being approached by two very different men. Both kings, both coming with a very different purpose. These men represent two very different ways of life. The first man is named Melchizedek. He is a priest and a king. He not only rules over the city of Salem, which will also one day be known as Jerusalem, but he is also a priest of the true God. Melchizedek has come to bless Abram. He comes and he lays out a feast for Abram, a feast of bread and wine. As we saw several weeks ago when we were together in this passage, Melchizedek points us to Jesus Christ, who Himself is our great High Priest and our mighty King. It is Jesus Christ who has come to us to bless us. It is Jesus Christ who has come to us with His body and with His blood. And even has instituted a sacred meal of bread and wine for us. But this man, Melchizedek, he stands before Abram as a servant of the true God come to bless. And then there's the second man. And he is the king of Sodom. Now, as you well know, the city of Sodom is not exactly known as a uh, place of godliness. This was a pagan city. This was a city rampant with sexual immorality. And we have no reason to believe that the king of Sodom himself was any different from the city that he ruled over. He comes to Abram and he says, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. And some people see in that a a note of of generosity. They, They see that the king of Sodom is telling Abram that he can keep the possessions that he recaptured. But other people see a note of arrogance. They point out that the king of Sodom is in no place to come to Abram and demand that Abram give him anything. Well, Abram responds to these two very different men in two very different ways. After receiving the blessing of Melchizedek, he in turn gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. He pays a tithe to this priest as a way of honoring this man, and as a way of honoring the true God whom Melchizedek represents. We have every reason to believe that what is happening in these verses is happening in a very public setting. It is very doubtful that we only have three men here. There is probably a host of people who have come and who see this banquet laid out for Abram. And there's probably many people here. And so when Abram is giving his offering to Melchizedek, he is acknowledging that God is the one responsible for his victory. And yet Abram refuses to honor the king of Sodom. He will keep for himself none of the possessions that came from the city of Sodom. He says in verse 22, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. 
In other words, King of Sodom, I will give you no grounds for boasting. I will give you no room for honor. And so one man, Abram honors, and the other, he will not. In all of this, Abram was making a clear statement to those who were standing by his witnesses. He was giving honor and glory to his God and to the priest of his God. But he would not publicly esteem this man of wickedness. Well, this morning I want to draw our attention to five lessons that I see taught in these verses. But the first and main one that I see is this. That we as God's people should be careful whom we honor. We are to be a people who delight in giving honor where honor is due. Primarily, our lives are to be marked, indeed driven, by a desire to honor God. In everything we do, we want to see Him exalted. We want the way we live, the way we talk, the way we think, to make others see His glory and to see how worthy of honor He is. We want to be people who honor God. Romans 14.6 says about Christians... The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. In other words, even where Christians act differently or make different decisions, this unifying principle should undergird everything we do. We long to see our God honored. Because we are gripped by the truth that He is worthy of it. Yet not only are we to honor God directly, but we are to honor God indirectly by honoring those who evidence His grace. When we see people who live in integrity, when we see an example of godliness, when we see someone who is telling the truth, or standing up for righteousness, or exemplifying love, or courage, or patience, or compassion, we should seek to point that out, to honor that, to lift that up in the eyes of others. In our lives together as families, in our lives together as a church family, We are to look for these evidences of grace in one another's lives and point them out and hold them up. We are to honor the good we see in one another. Romans 12.10 says, Outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, we are to take every possible opportunity to exalt the virtue that we see in one another's lives. So that maybe if you and I are having a conversation, and in our conversation, uh, another church member's name comes up, if I, can, if I think of that person and, and think of that person, and I, I should be able to say to you, oh, and you know, I, I know one thing about so-and-so, he is a patient man. Or I, I, I know so-and-so about that lady, she has dealt with much, but she has dealt with it humbly and well. That is, our first instinct in talking about others should be to elevate and to honor evidences of grace. Our world does just the opposite. Rather than honoring godliness, our world often honors men or women whose lives are filled with immorality. 
Our world's instinct is to look down on the Melchizedeks of the world and to honor the kings of Sodom. So that you can have a man who was full of pride, a man who is a womanizer, a man who is a deceiver, a man who is a foul-mouthed fool. But if he can shoot a ball through a hoop well, fathers everywhere will put his jersey on their sons. They will buy their son's posters with his picture and they will go to games to watch him play. And meanwhile, there have been thousands of godly men throughout history who have walked in integrity and done courageous, amazing, radical deeds, true heroes, worthy of our honor. And most boys in our day will never even learn their names. And the same goes for young girls. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that it's wrong to marvel at an athlete who does astounding things. We can see someone who plays fantastic basketball and give glory to God for the talent we see, but we must be careful with whom we honor that we do not honor ungodliness, that we do not esteem wicked men or women in the eyes of others. It's very easy for me to start talking about children here and the kind of heroes we, we set before our young people. We've talked about that often. So I think what I want to do instead is talk to us who are adults. Because before we can teach our children to honor godliness and not to honor wickedness, we need to have learned that lesson ourselves. Who are the men and women that you honor with your lips and with your actions? When you are talking with a, with a spouse or a friend or with others, who are the people that you tend to boast about? Who are the people that you tend to speak well of? And who are the people that you feel inclined to put down? Could it be that often in your conversations that you are quick to put down your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ while being just as quick to speak highly of those who walk apart from Christ? To whom do we give honor? Let us imitate Abram in honoring men and women of godliness and not the wicked. So that's one lesson I see in these verses. Let me mention a second second lesson that I see here is that it is good for us to give offerings to our God from what He has given to us. I preach very seldom on giving. We've never had a stewardship Sunday or anything like that as long as I've been here. Uh, I tend to believe that if we're preaching the Word faithfully and God's people are, uh, are being fed by Him and nourished by Him, that giving will happen. And So I trust God in those things. But when we come to a passage in the Bible that speaks about giving, I, I unapologetically will preach on it. And, and we do here have an example of Abram coming before priest of God and giving a tenth of all that he has. Indeed, in this passage, Abram is honoring God in a very specific way. Namely, through his giving. By giving this tithe of his spoils, Abram was giving the glory for his victory to God. Abram is acknowledging that what he has received, he has received from God's hands. 
Abram was not arrogant or foolish enough to believe that God had no part in the events that had just taken place. No. He and Melchizedek both articulate in these verses that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, our God owns everything. And because God owns everything, God has the right to distribute the wealth of this world as He sees fit. So that we have in Genesis 13, Lot as a very wealthy man. And you come to Genesis 14, and suddenly Lot has nothing. The Lord gives, and the Lord can take away. And this is why our hope and our security in this life cannot rest on money or possessions, but only on God. Do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but set your hope on God. Well, when Christians give a tithe or offerings, it is a way of demonstrating to God, it is a way of demonstrating to ourselves that our hope is in Him and that we acknowledge Him as the giver and sustainer of our lives and all that we have. Indeed, it's good for us because our hearts are inclined towards pride. Our flesh is inclined towards us thinking that we deserve what we have. Our hearts are inclined towards believing that we are self-made people and that we can take credit for what we own. Because of this, <clears throat> we are prone to think that we should have the authority to spend our money any way we choose and that God should keep His divine nose out of our checkbooks. And on top of all this, we are prone to love our money and our possessions far too much to become too attached to them, to become unwilling to let them go. And so for all of these reasons, God does call His people to give and to give freely and joyfully to His purposes. Brothers and sisters, God does not need our money. God does not need your offerings. God calls us to give not because He needs the offerings, but for our good. It is love that moves Him to call us to give. Because our hearts need to be humbled. Because it is good for our souls to acknowledge Him as the giver of all things. It is good for our souls to part with some of what we have received. Giving tithes and offerings is a means of grace that not only blesses the church in general, but actually blesses the Christian who gives and does good to his or her soul. Now there are many in this world who want you to believe that if you would give to their ministry or if you will give to their church, God will respond with material blessing. If you give the seed gift of a monetary offering to this ministry, well, God has your check in the mail and you're going to be rewarded with something much more than what you gave. If you want good health and you want good wealth, then you give to this ministry, you give to this church, folks. That is a lie out of the pit of hell. 
God does promise to bless those who give, but He does not promise that you will give on Saturday and the Mercedes will be parked outside your car on Sunday. Rather, the blessing that God gives us as we give is what He's doing in our soul. How He is cultivating in us a spirit of kindness and generosity. How He is uprooting the sins of greed and selfishness and self-centeredness. Everything that we do as a church on Sundays, the, the singing of songs, the preaching of the Word, the prayers, all are means of grace that as we do them, God is working for spiritual good in our souls. So it is with the offering. And so we are foolish and we do ourselves harm when we disobey and dishonor God in this matter. And so we see from the example of Abram, that it is good to give to God from what we have received. Let me give you a third lesson. Third lesson. Third lesson we see here is that God's people should be careful to maintain a reputation of integrity. We see in verse 23 that Abram would not have his name associated with the king of Sodom. He would give the king of Sodom no grounds to say, I have made Abram rich. And Abram would not want people to think that he had accepted gifts from the king of Sodom and therefore entered into any sort of friendly relationship or alliance with this wicked man. Abram gives to the king of Sodom all of the spoils from that city because he is insistent on protecting his integrity. And we must not think he does this for his own sake alone. For he does it also for his God's sake. For if Abram were to align himself in any way with this king of Sodom, the people of the region might not only be asking, what do we think of Abram now? But also, what do we think of Abram's God? Abram has already identified himself publicly as a follower of the true God by the altars that he has been setting up throughout the land of Canaan and by giving this tithe to Melchizedek, the priest of the true God. People know who Abram is and who his God is. Will he now associate himself and his God with this wicked man? He will not. It is paramount for the glory of Abram's God to be most purely seen that Abram maintain a genuine reputation of integrity. All this to say, friends, our reputations do matter. You and I stand as citizens of a different kingdom. And you and I stand as ambassadors from God to this world we do not represent ourselves only in our business dealings. We do not represent ourselves only in what changes hands from us to others. We represent our God. If people laugh at you and mock you for living a godly life, then understand that they are laughing at God. They are mocking Him. If they marvel at your compassion and your kindness in Jesus' name, then they are marveling at Him, His character displayed in you. 
But if people see you and they see unfaithfulness, they see dishonesty, they see greed or bitterness, and they think less of you of it because of it, and they think less of your God because of it, well, then you have done something very wicked, for you have lied to them. You have misrepresented the true God. Our reputation and the reputation of our God is bound tightly together. This is why the Bible speaks about this issue often. For example, in in 1 Timothy 3.7, speaking of the qualifications for pastors, one of the qualifications for a pastor is that he must be thought well of by outsiders. That is, he must have a good reputation. And we are all called to be a light shining in the darkness. We are all called to be a city set on a hill. We are all called to be salt on this earth. We are to have a reputation for our good works so that people see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. I wonder, how would your neighbors describe you? What reputation do you have among your co-workers or Younger folks, among your friends. Do you see that your reputation is bound to the name of the God that you profess? When when others hear your name, do they associate your name with things that are good and praiseworthy? Or do they associate your name with things that are foolish and wicked? And why? Why? What reasons have you given for them to associate your name with what they associate them with? Have you ever considered that one of the best things the devil could do to try and dishonor God and keep people from coming to Christ would be to cause Christians to fall and have broken reputations in the sight of the world? If the devil can tempt us into losing our integrity so that people think poorly of us and so that people think poorly of our God, then the devil has made great ground in seeking to oppose the Lord Jesus Christ. God said that among the nations, He would be known as holy. Turn with me real quickly to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel Chapter 36. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. As I read these verses, beginning in verse 20, as I begin reading in verse 20, I I want you to notice two things. Two things I want you to notice. One, I want you to notice in these verses that God is promising a new covenant people in which all the people in this covenant will have new hearts. They'll have the Spirit living within them, causing them to do what is good and what is right from the heart. God is promising to create a people that will represent Him well. And second, I want you to notice the reason that God gives for doing this. Look at verse 20. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name 
and that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of His land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. For I will take you from the nations, and gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. Do you hear that, church? Do you hear what God is saying? God's utmost concern is for His holy name. God will not allow His holy name to be profaned in the sight of the world. National Israel was causing the name of God to be blasphemed. The people of God were idolaters. They were whoremongers. They were oppressors of the poor and of the widow and of the orphan. And God would not allow His name to be associated with such people anymore. And so He establishes a new covenant. In the blood of Jesus Christ, He creates a new people called the church. People born again by the Spirit. People who have the Spirit living within them to cause them to walk in God's ways. Why are we called to remove people from our church when they live in sin and refuse to repent? Why did Jesus command that? Because the name of God must not be profaned. The name of God is worth more than your life. And the name of God is worth more than my life. And the name of God is worth more than your family. And the name of God is worth more than my family. And among the nations, God's name must be seen as holy. And therefore, when we live in ungodly ways, and if we build up ungodly reputations, giving the people of this world an opportunity to speak badly about our God, we contradict everything that God has been doing in the coming of Christ, in the crucifixion, in the resurrection, in the day of Pentecost. All of the big picture of what God is doing in this age, we contradict when we stand as born-again people living ungodly lives. And so like Abram, we must be careful to walk in integrity. What a joyful privilege to represent God's name on this earth. This should fill us with great happiness. But it should also wipe away every ounce of foolishness from our lives. 
knowing that we represent God's name should make us a very thoughtful, a very sober-minded people. It should make us a very careful people in all of our dealings, in all of our conversations, in all of our relationships. So test yourself, Christian brother or sister. What will people speak about God's name because of you? The fourth lesson, I know I'm running out of time. The fourth lesson I want to draw our attention to is this. This one is not nearly as important, but one I wanted to mention because it was here. Is that it is sometimes appropriate for God's people to make an oath before Him. We have in this passage, Abram making an oath. Uh, In verse 22, he informs the king of Sodom that he has lifted his hand to the Lord, that he would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything belonging to Sodom. This was, this was a ritual in Old Testament times of lifting your hand to God. This was a way of making a vow to God, of making an oath. We are sometimes called upon to make such oaths. If you've ever served on jury duty, you are asked to take an oath, and in doing so, you are vowing to God to speak the whole truth. Or if you ever serve as a witness, to speak the truth, the whole truth, and uh, nothing but the truth. The problem comes when we remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, right? And so this is where the, the rub comes. We have Abram here taking an oath in the name of God, and you have Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. And so when we read that, it sure sounds like Jesus is saying that we must never take an oath before God or or make a vow in His name. And so the question is, is, is what Abram did here wrong? Well, there are several reasons why I think we cannot take the words of Jesus to mean that we must never make any vows at all. First, Jesus said that He did not come to abolish the law. And the Mosaic Law did make provisions for people to make oaths in the name of God. Second, we have the examples of the Old Testament saints. Abram, as we see here, Isaac, uh, Jacob, Ruth, David, Jonathan. All of these people in the Scriptures took oaths. And we have no hint that what they did was wrong. Third, the Apostle Paul. After Jesus gave the command in the Sermon on the Mount, the Apostle Paul knew Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, and yet he does not hesitate in three of his letters to take an oath before God. Jesus Himself, in Revelation 10, 5-6, as the angel of the Lord makes an oath. The book of Hebrews, chapter 6, 17-18, said God has taken an oath towards us. And finally, in Matthew, after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Himself speaks under oath before the high priest. So Jesus is not making a universal prohibition saying you must never make an oath or a vow before God. Rather, what He's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount 
is that we must never take oaths or vows before God as a part of our normal daily conversation. That is, this ought to be a very sacred thing and a very serious thing. And the Jews of the first century, well, they understood that swearing in God's name was very serious. And so they had begun swearing by everything else in the world. The religious leaders had taught them that when Leviticus 19.12 says, you shall not swear by my name falsely, that what God was saying is, do not use my name in an oath if you're not going to keep it. But if you swear by other things, well, that's different. That is, you're not as bound to keep your promise if you swear by something else. And so people had begun swearing by heaven. People had begun swearing by earth. People had begun swearing by the temple. People had begun making oaths by the hairs of their head. Historians tell us that in the first century, people were even going around doing what we do sometimes. Just saying, I swear, but not saying anything they swear by. Just, I swear. And the upshot of this was that people were no longer making solemn oaths in God's name. Rather, they were making oaths all the time in their conversation and were not keeping them at all. Oaths became commonplace and could not be trusted. And the more people took oaths and broke them and became liars, the more they felt the need to take more oaths so that people would believe them the next time. And so, Jesus says, if you would just say yes or no and keep your word you would not need to take an oath at all. And so that's the way to do it in your daily conversation. But he doesn't mean don't ever take an oath in any situation. He means in your normal living, don't get involved in this. So what I'm saying is that there may be moments when it is appropriate for us to imitate Abram in making a vow or an oath before the Lord. Indeed, in a sense, this is what we do in a marriage ceremony. Is it not? When we promise before God to cling to our spouse till death do us part, even when we read our church covenant together, as we do sometimes, and we'll do again in a few weeks, or, or I have you stand up and face each other in the sight of God, and we read our covenant. These should be very serious moments. We should never make a promise we do not intend to keep. But how much more must we strive to keep our word when we have made a vow before God? Because to break our word in that context is to especially test God and to show contempt for Him. So there may be appropriate times, and indeed there are, to make vows before God as Abram had done. We don't have time for our fifth lesson um, I'll just tell you what it, what it was going to be and make a brief comment. We'll, we'll stop there. Uh, the fifth lesson was this. Often doing what is right for the glory of God means giving up your rights. Giving up your rights. Abram had a right to keep these spoils for himself. But for the glory of God, he was willing to give up all these riches. He was willing to sacrifice for the name of God. The Apostle Paul said he was willing to lay down his rights in order to put no obstacle between someone else and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For us, this simply means we must be more jealous for the name of our God than we are about our own rights or what we think we deserve. And if our God is everything to us, 
If our God is truly the fountain of everlasting joy for us, this will come natural to us. Friends, we will sometimes fail at following these lessons that we've seen from this passage. In those moments, we need to be especially thankful for the blood of Jesus, which cleanses us from all our sins. Let us love our Savior. Let us not rest on our good works, but let us rest on Christ and Christ alone. And then resting on Christ alone, let us seek in His strength that He provides to us to be faithful to these things that He has taught us from His Word. We are His disciples. He is our Master. We have come to sit at His feet this morning. He has taught us from from His Word. Now the question is, do we trust Him? And if we do, then by His grace, let's put these principles into practice in our lives so that others may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Well, it is certainly possible that there are some in this room who are not a disciple of Jesus. Some in this room who have never humbled their hearts before Christ.